1: and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com.
3: Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and
0: data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you.
4: There's one place, one club, where anyone who's anyone can be found on a Saturday night.
5: You always went to Tropicana. doesn't matter where you went. You wound up at Tropicana because it was world famous. And just to walk in and look at it was enough.
4: It's more than a casino and cabaret. It's a destination nestled within a lush six-acre estate.
5: It was the world's most beautiful nightclub I think of it as a paradise under the stars.
4: You walk into the Tropicana Ballroom, set within a perfectly manicured rainforest. Palm trees encircle the stage. An advertisement from the time called it luxuriant vegetation.
5: You thought you were outdoors. And you look up at the ceiling.
4: It's like an enormous shell, but made of glass.
5: If you look up, you will see the canopy of the trees and the stars. So it, it was very romantic.
4: So, grab a drink.
5: The bar had a cage in the back full of colorful Amazonian birds. Parrots, cockatoos, toucans. Every kind of bird was back there.
4: You take a sip of your minty sweet mojito, relax, and you start rubbernecking.
5: The place was full of celebrities. If you kept walking, you ran into... Possibly Frank Sinatra, Ben Crosby, uh, Rita Hayworth. Marlon Brando. Elizabeth Taylor. Debbie Reynolds. Marlene Dietrich. President John F. Kennedy. Oh, JFK, yes. All the American politicians were there, including the presidents. And who else could you spot with these A-listers? Alongside all these celebrities, there were the sugar barons. Among the wealthiest people in the country. For example, the Van Hul family. You might even lay eyes
4: on one Alfonso Huel, hair slicked, dashing, old school, dressed to the nines.
5: Because this is a place where the rich and famous chose to play. My name is Domitila Fox. I go by Tilly.
4: Tilly more or less grew up at the Tropicana. Her uncle was the principal owner, and her father helped found it. Of course, they'd spend every New Year's Eve in the club. So in 1956, it seemed like any other celebration to young Tilly.
5: There was a show, and uh, we were sitting at the family table, which was right on the way to the stage. Everybody was happily watching uh, Benny Morey.
4: It's all laughter and dancing, peppered with the occasional squawking of one of the bar's resident toucans. Then... Just before midnight, the orchestra is reaching a crescendo, and...
5: All of a sudden, you hear a blast, and it sounded like a huge clap of thunder. It was terrifying because I knew it was a bomb. People screaming, like, oh my gosh, it's a bomb, la bomba, una otra bomba. And it, it was panic. It was chaos. Everybody started running out because... You didn't know if there were more bombs in the place.
4: The explosion came from the lady's bathroom, where there was a woman.
5: Her arm had come off, literally with the bomb.
4: A revolution was underway. Its ripples would change the world, not to mention the global sugar industry, and the lives of two budding Cuban sugar princes, Alfie Jr. and Pepe Van Hool, The same men who today in the United States sit at the top of the sugar world, The men behind Florida Crystals, two of the men the sugarcane cutters and their lawyers in this story, are taking on. Who are they? Well, buckle up. It's going to be quite a ride. I'm Celeste Headley, and from iHeartMedia, Imagine Audio, and the teams at Weekday Fun and Novel, this is Big Sugar, Episode 4. Without sugar, there is no country. First up, I need to apologize. You'll endure some pretty cringy corporate videos throughout this series, but the one I'm about to play might be the worst. It's from 2018, when Alfie and Pepe Van Hool were inducted into the Florida Agricultural Hall of Fame. If I was going to take a guess at what the producer searched for when sourcing what must be the world's least subtle production music, I'd say inspirational. And again, I'm really sorry.
1: Brothers Alfonso and Pepe Hul own and farm some of the finest sugarcane fields in the nation. Located mostly in Palm Beach County, the family's Florida Crystals Corporation was founded as a sugarcane farming and milling company in 1960. and has been producing high-quality sugar for more than 50 years.
4: The reason I'm putting you through the production music equivalent of hell is so you can hear the voice of Alfie Fanjul Jr.,
5: People ask me, what do you do? What is your profession? I say, former. And sometimes they look at me, former. You know, that, that's what I
6: am. I've done everything in a form.
4: And here's his younger brother and business partner, Pepe Hul.
6: But the company has, uh, you know, it's still
7: primarily a sugar company, but it's diversifying to do other things, too. and uh, We're very excited about this.
4: These guys are two of the richest sugarcane growers in the world, Today, they're in their 70s and 80s, and they're billionaires with a B. Alfie says they've done everything on a farm, but let's be real. Their pastel socks and gold-buckled loafers are serving far more of the shareholder meetings in the boardroom look than hacking away in the cane fields realness. In the video, drone footage shows Alfie and Pepe doing an Armageddon-style walk, wearing brown and tortoiseshell sunglasses, strutting through a field of sugarcane, that literally extends into the horizon. In all likelihood, you've eaten their products. They own CNH, Tate and Lyle, and Domino Sugar. They're far from the only sugarcane growers in the US, and they're not the only rich sugarcane growers in the US. But in the story we're telling about the class action lawsuit, they're major players. They own three of the five farms that lawyers Edward Tuttenham and Dave Gorman took on, Ocalanta, Osceola, and Atlantic. When you first met Alfie, he told you it was the first time he'd given an in-depth interview.
8: Yes. When I first met Alfie, he said, this is the first time I've ever spoken in an in-depth way to any reporter
4: When Vanity Fair journalist Marie Brenner got an interview with Alfie and Pepe Van Hool, she knew it was a big deal. These guys rarely interact with the media unless it's fluff videos like the one you just heard or society columnists snapping photos of them with Meryl Streep and Angelina Jolie at charity galas.
8: But he told her, It is time to try to get our side of the story across.
4: Marie had been trying for months to get an interview with the sugar Magnets while she was covering the lawsuit in the late 90s and early 2000s.
8: I had written long, earnest letters saying, it's better for you to get your point across, use me to tell your side of the story.
4: All that perseverance paid off. She was invited to interview Alfie and his brother Pepe several times, including one time aboard their super yacht, Krilly.
8: They invited me on their boat,
4: The press coverage of the case hadn't been flattering for them. There were stories of how the workers were living on their farms in prison-like conditions, doing absolutely grueling work, and at the end of the day, being underpaid. So Alfie starts telling his side of the story.
8: And he did. He told a compelling story about being a young man in Cuba, having been shot at by the Castro forces. His father was arrested. Okay, wait, 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 wait.
4: Before we get to the shooting, the arrests, the bombs, there is so much to unpack here. You see, even though the Fanjuls are known as some of the richest sugarcane growers in the U.S., that's not where their story starts. It begins in Cuba, where the brothers Alfie and Pepe were born in the 1930s and 40s and raised, where their family was from. In the 1950s, the Hool's were mega wealthy. And how did they make their money? No surprise, sugar. There are home videos from the time of Alfie and Pepe as young sugar princes whiling away the hours by the pool and their evenings entertaining a former king of England.
8: They were rich boys in the Havana of the 1950s. Their parents would have the Duke of Windsor and the Duchess of Windsor coming to stay with them. They lived in an immense mansion, which I visited on several occasions in Havana that had been done by the great French decorator Henri Samuel, was filled with, you know, the most beautiful crown derby and the most beautiful porcelains.
4: One of the Fanjul family houses was like a Cuban version of France's Palace of Versailles. Many of the vast rooms had different themes, neoclassical, Chinese, and English. In fact, as a girl, when she wasn't at her family's club, the Tropicana, Tilly Fox hung out there.
5: Oh my gosh, uh, these houses compared to the greatest estates of England.
4: Don't forget, her family owned a famous nightclub, so Tilly had some wild experiences as a little girl.
5: For example, I remember playing piano with Liberace and also Nat King Cole. Uh, we would go fishing with Ernest Hemingway.
4: Right. Just a day on the boat with Papa Hemingway. But even with all these fantastical experiences, the Fan hool houses stick out in her memory. They were that grand.
5: I was used to seeing all of this, but I do remember those houses, what they looked like. Probably they had about uh, 15 guest bedrooms that were on huge estates, winding staircases. It's something out of a movie. It was all done with exquisite taste. Really spectacular.
4: But how exactly did the Fanhole family get so rich that they were living in what was effectively a palace, holding parties for some of the most famous people in the world, even royalty? John Paul Rathbone worked a stint as the Latin America editor at the Financial Times, and sugar is both a professional interest for him.
7: I'm the author of The Sugar King of Havana, The Rise and Fall of Julio Lobo, Cuba's Last Tycoon.
4: But sugar and Cuba are also personal for John Paul.
7: So my my mother is Cuban. She was born in Havana.
4: And his great-great-grandfather actually owned a sugar mill himself.
7: So my grandfather was a character, and he's the family patriarch in the family imagination.
4: So let's focus on the Fonhuls. The Fonhuls came from a long line of privilege, partly because they married into sugar. The intertwining family dynasties can get a little confusing, so bear with me here. Around the turn of the 20th century, they joined forces in holy matrimony with the Rionda family. Manuel Rionda was back then the largest sugar producer in the world. So when his sister Maria married a fanjul, it put considerable sugar assets into the fanjul name. And then, like a sugary Game of Thrones, in the 1930s, the family married into another huge sugar dynasty, that of Pepe Gomez Mena. His daughter Lillian married Alfonso Fanjul Sr., uniting two of Cuba's leading sugar families to create one mega-sugar empire.
7: Gómez Mena were, were a very, they were fabulously wealthy. They were one of the fabulously wealthy um, sugarcrat families.
4: A sugarcrat, a sugar aristocrat. That's rarefied air.
7: So when Gómez Mena family and the Fang Hu family joined, it was, it was a high society wedding, essentially. There's a kind of ranking in the gossip columns of the day where the most lavish wedding was called a bola de oro a golden wedding. Well-dressed men and beautifully dressed women dancing in the country club and um, all stops pulled out.
4: The sugar credentials of the Fanhole family were firmly secured by this marriage and that came with power. If you were a sugar grower, you'd made it to the top. Being part of a sugarcrat family, well, it's the kind of profession that comes in handy when you're trying to get into exclusive restaurants. The kind of profession that allows you to say, don't you know who I am? to maitre d's. Cuban sugar barons have always had a certain reputation. Like back in the 50s, there were stories of an ultra-wealthy sugar baron called Julio Lobo. He's a guy whose wealth these days would be defined in Bill Gates terms. There's this legend about him filling up a pool with perfume for the American actress and competitive swimmer Esther Williams.
7: I think it's more likely that he probably sprinkled a few drops and said something flattering to her, like, my darling, now I'm giving you a pool of perfume. But it's those kinds of stories that sort of generate the idea of these incredible riches.
4: Soon after Alfie Von Sr. and Lillian Rosa Gomez-Mena tied the knot in that high society wedding, the next generation of sugar barons were born. In 1937, Alfonso Von Jr., that's Alfie, and seven years later, Jose Fanjul, known as Pepe.
7: They sent their children to school in the United States, and they gave fantastic parties.
4: The boys, Pepe and Alfie, were sent to America for college. Their new American lives were a long way from the family's sugarcane plantations. Apparently, the Fanjuls wanted to emulate the lives of French aristocracy who lived like royalty. And much like their 18th century counterparts, the brothers were separated both literally and metaphorically from the backbreaking job of cutting sugarcane that paid for their fine clothes and expensive educations. For many sugarcrats, John Paul says,
7: The life of the black part of the population and the less well off was completely hidden to them, and they were incurious about it and, and not aware of it. But scroll,
4: scroll, scroll back even further, because this didn't all happen in a vacuum. The sugar that made these families in Cuba, well, there's quite a backstory. More after the break.
3: Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at meaningfulbeauty.com.
2: Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert.
4: There's a saying in Cuba, sin azúcar no hay país.
7: Without sugar, there is no country. That kind of, in, in brief, sin azúcar no hay país, encapsulates the whole essence and importance of, of sugar.
4: If you hopped in a bumper car and whizzed through Cuban history, you would knock into sugar constantly.
7: Sugar had very modest beginnings in Cuba before the 18th century. It was sort of artisanal level.
4: There was sugar, but it wasn't yet eaten or traded on a grand scale. But then, boom, the British capture Havana in 1762, just for seven months before it returns to Spanish hands. And as the world's demand for sugar increases, nearly the whole island changes its focus to one thing, sugarcane.
7: And it was like applying yeast to a solution of sugar. The whole thing suddenly grew.
4: Not far away, Haiti is a world leader in sugar production. But then, enslaved workers there lead a successful revolution in the late 1700s. It leaves a huge gap in the market for sugar, so Cuba steps up.
7: In the space of 100 years or so, Cuba became the largest sugar producer in the world, accounting for perhaps a quarter of the world market.
4: It had the right climate, hot, perfect for sugarcane. Cuba became known as the sugar bowl of the world. And that's when this whole new class emerged, sugarcrats. In fact, the very concept of Cuba as a nation came from these sugarcrats.
7: They were the first people to call Cuba a country. The idea of calling the colony a country is is interesting that it was Cuban sugar planters uh, who were thinking of it in those terms.
4: So sugar was a driving force both politically and economically for Cuba, but also socially. Because the booming economy was built on the exploitation of hundreds of thousands of enslaved Africans.
7: Slavery played a huge role in Cuban history and society and helped determine what the island went on to become.:
4: If an enslaved West African survived the harrowing ocean journey to Cuba, in all likelihood they then had the misfortune of winding up cutting sugarcane.:
7: Cutting sugar is back-breaking work. It's ferocious.
4: Just a reminder, if you've forgotten how difficult sugarcane cutting is.
7: You're bent over double, hacking away at this very tough grass, essentially, with a sharp blade. You can slice off your toe or your foot. It's very hot. There are snakes. Everything about it is backbreaking, punishing work.
4: Enslaved workers were likely to die within a decade of arriving on a Cuban sugarcane plantation.
7: It was inhumane, and the conditions were awful.
4: The U.S. abolished slavery in 1865, but Cuba did the opposite. The use of enslaved people actually increased, largely to satisfy the hunger of the sugar industry.
7: Slavery persisted for a long time in Cuba.
4: Until 1886. In fact, according to some estimates, over the entire history of the Atlantic slave trade, Cuba received twice as many enslaved Africans as the U.S. Cuba, a relatively small island country only about 750 miles long and 100 miles wide, about the size of Tennessee if you're looking for a comparable state. That said, much of the sugar harvested by enslaved people was heading straight to
7: America. It was what joined Cuba economically at the hip to the United States, more than gambling, tourism, anything like that. No, Cuba and sugar in the United States was fundamental.
4: Sugar just keeps popping up throughout Cuban history. The first war of independence.
7: The first was led by planters in the east of the country, and they were sugar owners.
4: When that movement failed, there was a second attempt at independence from Spain. And bump, you see sugar again. As the rebel forces advance, thousands of acres of sugarcane are set alight. A leader of the movement said the torch became the most devastating weapon in the insurrectionary arsenal. It was a protest, a way of disrupting the foundations of the country.
7: Historians generally reckon that the Cubans were about to win, and then the U.S. arrived.
4: This is in 1898.
7: And uh, when um, the Spanish are finally booted out, it's an American flag that's raised over Havana instead of a Cuban one.
4: With the smoldering sugarcane fields pouring smoke across the horizon. So as Cuba became supposedly independent, slavery had been abolished, but the sugar industry still remained, and working in the fields and mills continued to be unbelievably demanding work. On the flip side, if you were a Cuban sugar grower, the people who owned the farms, you were at the top of the social pyramid.
7: You could be wealthy if you were a Cuban sugar planter, and many were. You certainly had social cachet.
4: So sugarcane defined the wealth of Cuba, fueled the importation of enslaved people, was part of the fight for independence, and was the economic glue that bound the island to the
7: U.S. It's fundamental. It's like saying, what is oil to Saudi Arabia?
4: Now you get it.
7: Without sugar, there's no country.
4: Without sugar, there is no country. So tell me about your impressions when you sat down for this interview. What was your
8: first impression? Well, Alfie was absolutely charming. He has incredible cool.
4: Marie Brenner, who met Alfie and Pepe Van Hool when she was writing her article for Vanity Fair. So yeah, Alfie has cool. Well, of course he has. He's a sugarcrat.
8: They had grown up in what they call the country club section of Havana, Going
4: to society parties and polo matches, Alfie Jr. had been raised to navigate social interactions with the fluidity of an orchestra conductor wielding his baton.
7: I expect they led quite a sort of frivolous and claustrophobic life. I would say it was an insular and inward-looking social group with quite strict social mores and um, no little snobbery.
4: But don't forget when and where they grew up. 1950s Cuba. This was when the country was under the rule of General Batista. He was elected president in the early 1940s, and he took power again in the 1950s after a military coup with financial and logistical support from the U.S. And again, Sugar appears as a star in the character list of Cuban history. When in power, General Batista cozied up too many rich sugar planters as the gap between wealthy and poor continued to widen in his country.
7: Batista denies he is a dictator and says some of his opponents are pro-communist.
4: Look, if you feel the need to deny you're a dictator.
7: With the sugar industry flourishing, apparently contented
6: workers also support Batista, who seized power in 1952.
4: Contented? I really wonder if the workers on the sugar farms might use a different word. The men who cut the sugar cane were still mostly black Cubans, descendants of enslaved people. The less dangerous jobs in the sugar mills and factories, those were largely done by white Cubans. As for the owners of the sugar farms, there were some hiccups that came along with operating a successful enterprise under a dictatorship. I mean, sorry, alleged dictatorship. The Fonhuls were no strangers to paying bribes to the regime. Apparently, the family otherwise considered themselves above politics, and Alfonso Sr. even rejected an ambassadorship offered to him by President Batista. Bribery? That was just something they had to deal with on the side. Bureaucracy, if you will. Otherwise, it was the Golden Age, one of the best times to be a sugar grower in Cuba. But like all Golden Ages, the good times can't last forever.
3: Meaningful Beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com.
4: 1956, a pivotal year in Cuban history. That's because that's the year that a 31-year-old Fidel Castro returned to the country. Born into a wealthy family himself, Castro became a passionate anti-imperialist while studying law. The young Castro joined rebel forces fighting in Colombia and the Dominican Republic before returning home to Cuba. He had a singular intention, overthrow Batista. He was ardent and articulate, a natural leader.
7: It was on this coast that exiled Castro and his small band of rebels landed last December.
4: There were dozens of rebels on that rickety boat called the Granma, including a young Argentinian named Che Guevara. He also became a zealous leftist at university. While working as a doctor in Mexico City, he met Fidel Castro. And over the course of a conversation, the first time they met, Guevara became convinced that the fight against Batista was his fight
5: too. I do remember when things started getting hot in Cuba in 1956.
4: From the date of Castro's landing, Cuba was in a state of virtual civil war, with the revolutionaries trying to depose Batista, rid the country of U.S. influence, and impose a new communist government.
6: This was the scene of turmoil in the capital, Havana, as the climax of revolution was reached. Anyone suspected of sympathy for the Batista regime came in for a rough time.
5: They cut the electricity. They set off Molotov cocktails. For the people of Cuba, the thunder of explosives
4: became regular background noise.
5: Yes, yes, that's correct. My mother would say, las bombitas. The little bombs, like the one that ripped through the Tropicana nightclub. And at the time, they didn't know what had happened. They just thought, oh, here's a bomb. We just heard the blast. You didn't know if there were more bombs in the place. And if somebody was going to come in with a machine gun or set fire to the place...
4: Riots broke out, people were kidnapped, hundreds were killed on both sides, while Batista suspended constitutional rights like freedom of expression and freedom of assembly.
3: This is only the beginning. The last battle will be fought in the capital.
4: You can be sure. And just as Faulkner said, the past is never dead, it's not even past, so like déjà vu from the independence movement, the sugar fields went up in smoke.
5: It was actually teenagers and university students went after the rich people and they burned down the sugar cane fields.
4: Sugar represented so much of what people were fed up with. The inequity, the difference between their lives and those of the rich, including sugar farm owners like the Funhuls.
7: They were viewed as classe alta, upper class. In developing countries, the upper class, if you're in the middle class or the lower class, is a very distant realm. It can seem very glamorous um, and something one would want to aspire to or overthrow. From the Fidelista's
4: point of view, people like the Funhools Hools were villains.
5: The problem is that some of them resented the manner in which they lived. They were there working at the fields, and here's this guy in his huge, mansion, uh, with his sports cars and his
8: parties. They were the parasite class. They were the leeches. They were the exploiters.
4: Many Cubans felt marginalized by the rich, people like the Fanjuls. Then there was the political corruption and the influence of the U.S. in Cuba. All of it fueled the revolution. New Year's Eve, 1958. Brothers Alfie and Pepe Fanjul are at the Havana Yacht Club, obviously.
8: It's godfather, too. I mean, it's like they're at their club. They're the fireworks.
4: People are there celebrating, despite all the chaos at the time. But that night, the clink of champagne glasses gets interrupted.
5: Batista's military turned on him. So he had to leave. Rumors start swirling at the
4: party. President Batista has been deposed. Castro and his revolutionaries have taken power.
8: Suddenly it's the shooting and people are having to flee and run and run under cover and run for the airport and run for boats and, and everyone is fleeing.
4: Shortly afterward, armed militia arrive at the Fanjul's house. Alfie told Marie all about this for her Vanity Fair article.
8: When they got home, they discovered that there were fidelistas in their house and that half the rooms had been cordoned off, having been shot at by the Castro forces. His father was arrested.
4: Alfonso Sr. is taken by the rebels and interrogated for hours.
8: Then the father had to have someone swear for him that he had never had anything to do with the Baptista government.
4: Finally, he's released, but he isn't sticking around in Cuba.
8: The father was allowed to leave the country, and he left Alfie in charge of the sugar interests.
4: Alfie had just graduated college from Fordham in New York. He's 21 years old and now responsible for holding on to the family's sugar empire at the peak of a revolution.
6: At last, Dr. Fidel Castro himself arrived. Time and again, he was held up by the crowds. He spoke to them of the new regime now being inaugurated, a regime, by the way, now formally recognized by Britain.
7: So Batista leaves. The island is delighted. Castro drives in a slow convoy. Roses are thrown in, in front of his jeeps. My mother is in the crowd and rushes out and kisses Camilo Cienfuegos, who was one of the heroes of the revolution. Everyone is delighted. The tyrant is gone.
4: Well, not everyone was delighted. For the rich, the landowners, things were unraveling, and rapidly, their assets were evaporating.
6: Fidel Castro's INRA operates out of a 19-story headquarters in Havana and gobbles up businesses and industries in a wide-sweeping takeover of all means of production.
7: All the businesses essentially are nationalized, first the mills, then the smaller land holdings, then big businesses and then small businesses.
6: The revolution has taken over 51% of the land. Through Castro's INRA, the government owns cane fields, the plantations, pasture land. And the guajiros, the workers who were promised the land, find themselves captives of the state.
5: Those people with the huge land holdings, and we're talking mainly the sugar industry, because that was the number one industry in Cuba. The other one, I think, was uh, tobacco. They were targeted. And people lost their farms. And uh, there were some that committed suicide because they couldn't stand it, that everything they worked for all their life was now taken by the government.
4: That also includes Domatilla's family's club, the Tropicana. It was taken by Castro's new government and nationalized. Now Castro took Marlon Brando's seat— and it's unclear what happened to the toucan. Meanwhile, Alfie's there watching on as all the farms and businesses around him were being snapped up.
8: He was part of a culture that he was watching lose everything. You know, all over Havana, businesses were getting burned, there were riots in the street.
4: But Alfie's convinced, while everyone was losing their businesses, they can keep their farms.
8: This will not happen to us. No one would dare trifle with us. And that was part of the grandiosity, that they felt that their sugar holdings would protect them rather than make them a target.
4: Somehow, Marie says, Alfie believed he would be able to retain his land, even though he knew his life was on the line.
8: His life was in danger, and he had to literally go from house to house because he would be shot at.
4: Alfie spent the year of 1959 in hiding. Then came the evening that would be a cataclysm. Castro's rebels enter the family headquarters on the Avenida de Gomez-Mena, the street in Havana named after Alfie's grandfather.
8: When they broke into a boardroom,
4: the rebels slammed their guns on the conference
8: table. And the room, as he described it, was decorated with these astonishing maps of their 150,000 acres and the 10 sugar mills. And Alfie said that they were trying to explain to us the process of what they were going to do and how they were going to take all of our property away. They circled a wall map and said, this will be ours, all of it.
4: This experience with the rebels has become part of the Fanjul's romantic origin story, a story that Alfie has told and retold many times. Here, he and his brother Pepe are talking about it in that over-the-top video. And again, sorry.
5: After Castro came in, I was there when uh, basically uh, they told us that were want to take the properties away, and... uh,
7: uh, it was a really unpleasant experience. When we think it was traumatic for us, it, would, it was, but I, I think how brave my grandparents were and parents were, and what a what a must have been for them it must have been devastated.
4: Their mills were seized. The historic family mansion we talked about was taken. In fact, today it's now the country's decorative arts museum. It was becoming increasingly clear that Alfie Van Hul had to leave Cuba.
8: Literally, he ran for his life. He went to his house. They had $10,000 in a safe. He made the decision to leave the money there because he was terrified what would happen to him if he was caught taking that much cash out of Havana.
4: His brother Pepe raced out of Cuba too.
8: And he got on a plane, and on the plane was Errol Flynn, fleeing Havana too, a detail which I just loved.
4: When the Tropicana was nationalized, Domatilla also fled the country by plane.
5: I left using a fake passport. And
4: John Paul's mother slipped out around this time.
7: My mother's family, like many Cubans who had businesses, then left the island. There was no livelihood for them to pursue. In
4: 1959, 23-year-old Alfie touched down in Miami.
8: His life as a young man in his 20s was a reversal of fortune, coming into a country that he knew, of course, because he'd gone to college here. And yes, they were very lucky because they had a lot more money in America than a lot of other Cuban refugees did. But still, the mansions were gone, the assets were gone,
4: So Alfie has just arrived in Florida. He's been able to get some of their money out of Cuba. And along with his newly exiled status, Alfie receives a directive from the family patriarch. Didn't his grandfather explicitly tell him that he had a responsibility to build it back up?
8: Yes. He was told, this money is not going to last past your generation. And if you want to have money for your heirs, you're going to have to build up everything again the Fonhuls set their sights
4: on one
8: thing. They had to remake their fortune. But how? How
4: did the Fonhuls become some of the wealthiest sugar growers in the United States? And how have you, even if you don't eat sugar, helped them to become billionaires? Next time, I pay the Fonhuls a house visit. Yeah, so we're looking at Alfie's house, and it's... Huge. I mean, it looks like a hotel. And get to the bottom of how they ended up as the most infamous sugar barons in America.
1: They live in Palm Beach. They live the lives of multimillionaires. And that is strictly due to the unwitting generosity of uh, federal taxpayers.
8: And they begin to bring in Jamaicans, thousands and thousands of Jamaicans to cut the cane. It's good for them.
7: It's not good for us. Cause we are the one at the fucking bottom. We are the ones that's struggling to keep their pockets fat.
4: That's next time on Big Sugar. Big Sugar is produced by Imagine Audio, Weekday Fun Productions, and novel for iHeartMedia. The series is hosted by me, Celeste Headley. Big Sugar is produced by Jeff Eisenman at Weekday Fun Productions. It's executive produced by Kara Welker, Nathan Cloak, and Marie Brenner. Story editor and executive producer is Joe Wheeler. The researcher is Nadia Mehdi. Production management from Cherie Houston, Frankie Taylor, and Charlotte Wolfe. Our fact checker is Sona Avakian. Field reporting by Amber Amortegi. Sound design and mixing by Eli Block, Naomi Clark, and Daniel Kempson. Original music composed by Troy McCubbin at Alloy Tracks. Additional music by Nicholas Alexander. Special thanks to Alec Wilkinson, author of the book Big Sugar, and Stephanie Black, director of the documentary H2 Worker. Big Sugar is based on the Vanity Fair article in The Kingdom of Big Sugar by Marie Brenner.
2: Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares.
1: Discover more at Viking.com. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more...